Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Roth. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we're going to discuss another of the seven deadly sins, as they're often called. So the deadly seven sins, if you're not familiar, is those sins that are identified by many early Christians who were part of the monastic movement. And these sins are especially dangerous because they can masquerade as righteousness. For example, last week we talked about sloth, which can masquerade as Sabbath rest. Gluttony can masquerade as eating and drinking as unto the Lord to feast. And lust can masquerade as love. So this episode of Leadership Now, we're going to address the deadly sin of lust. And so Aaron, maybe you can get us started and just introduce this topic for us. Yeah, happy to. I think it's a really important topic because the reality is we're all sexual beings. Let's not deny that. Let's not pretend that isn't part of our makeup. And we want to acknowledge that sexual desire in and of itself isn't sinful. God designed us with sexual desires. A sexual intercourse isn't sinful. God designed sexual intercourse. Christians, in principle, can have the best sex, can have great sex when they line up their sexuality with God's laws and God's word, because God is not a cosmic killjoy. He is benevolent. He is good. What he creates is good. It's for his glory and for for our own benefit. So we have to cast off any residual notions that we might have that somehow sex is a bad thing. It's of the world. No, sex is something that our loving, gracious, kind, covenantal God has designed. But what we want to emphasize is that as with all divine gifts, there are boundaries that are protective and they are profitable, meaning they benefit us. We could draw upon many illustrations from general life. Cars are good things. They speed up our ability to travel from point A to B. But if we don't put boundaries around how how cars are used, they can also become deadly weapons. Uh, Likewise, Uh, Eating is good, but there has to be boundaries to what we eat and how much we eat because food can both sustain the body and or destroy the body. And the same is true with sex. Sex, sexual desire is a good thing when it's lived out and embraced within God's covenantal laws. We are blessed when we step outside of those laws. Nasty, nasty, nasty things happen. So we want to discuss this today. In particular, we want to discuss lust, which is sort of the the underlying issue behind various forms of sexual uh, perversion. And what lust essentially is, it's a is is a perversion of the gift of love, of sexual love that God has given to us. Lust we could define as is a boundaryless sexual desire that expresses itself in a variety of ways, Chris, including fornication, uh, adultery, rape, sodomy, bestiality, and and I would think probably most commonly in the current era in pornography, mm-hmm. which is easily to access uh, to access, and which many, many people struggle with. I know this is a guy who's discipled other men and had lots of conversations with other men. It's increasingly, from what I understand from our female counselors, uh, a growing issue among women. 
although there's other ways that women can express uh, sexual perversion, all of it is a is a twisting. It is a perversion. It is a uh, crushing of God's divine design and replacing it with something that is that is um, destructive to who we are. We are image bearers. The Bible tells us that in Genesis one twenty seven, we're made in the image and likeness of God. That means we're different than animals. We are relational beings. We are spiritual beings. And so our sexuality differs from the animal world. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that has made sex almost more like this animalistic Mm -hmm. desire. You can have sex with whoever you want, however you want. There's no boundaries to it. But when we look at the scriptures, we do know that Sex is in part for the purpose of procreation, but it's also an opportunity to enjoy intimacy, covenantal care, and love. Animals don't have sex because they're interested in intimacy, covenantal care, and love. Hmm. They, they have sex in order to reproduce their species. It's interesting when you read some of the Old Testament prophets, I'm thinking of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They draw upon the imagery of animalistic sex, that the heat of a donkey, the the emissions or the unbridled lust of a stallion. They they draw upon those analogies to help us to understand the nature of unfettered perversion or godlessness. And it's true that animals have a, a certain unrestrained lust connected to reproduction. But, but in the Word of God, we we do believe sex is for reproduction, and and there's a cer- certain sense in which, you know, it it does exist to fulfill our innate biological sexual desires. But there has to be boundaries attached to that. E- even godless people, on some level, acknowledge this. Mm-hmm. Even in a culture like ours, where you can change your gender, you can participate in. Sodom, sodomite acts. You can have sex outside of marriage. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can, you can have sex before marriage with anyone you want. Um, people still frown on the idea of rape. Hmm. It's interesting. We frown on the idea of rape. There's no category for such a thing among a herd of cattle. Yeah. Or a um, flock of geese. You don't say all oh, that. That male goose over there is uh, having sex with that female goose. Did he get consent? Yeah. It's it's animalistic. There's no moral boundaries to it. In our culture, there is some basic acknowledgement. There are some moral boundaries, even if it's just boiled down to consent. But beyond that, we've pretty much tossed out all of those boundaries. And because of that, culture is suffering. People are suffering. Marriages are falling apart. And many people find themselves addicted to various forms of um, sexual perversion. So some of the reasons and background as to why we should probably have this conversation. Yeah, that's good. uh, It's interesting that I think a lot of people reject God's laws because they see them as somehow boring or restrictive, like they steal joy, that kind of thing. 
they rob us of fun and freedom, right? Uh, you go sow your wild oats kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. So before we got into the ways to overcome lust, I think it'd be helpful for you to show how us, how we can understand the beauty of restraint, the beauty of God's laws, why it's actually a good thing to overcome lustful thinking and sexual sin. I think it's important for us to really digest and think about what, what took place in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent convinced the first woman that God wasn't good, that God was holding out. There in that passage, we have one of the, the seminal lies, the fundamental foundational lies to all of sin. See, God is actually a good God. He's a benevolent God. Every single thing he says is for his glory, which we often emphasize, the holiness of God, the purity of God. But maybe one thing we don't emphasize enough is that it's also for our good. God is not dangling a, a carrot in front of our nose saying, hey, you, here's, here's something you, you might want, but I'm not going to let you have it. I'm going to make you starve to death. Hmm. He's not putting the piece of chocolate cake in front of us. He's not setting forth in front of us a, a big basket of candies. He's not laying before us a, a, a bag of gold and saying, this is something that I know you like and you'd probably enjoy, and I want you to be tempted by it, but I don't want you to actually participate in it. And... God is not the kind of God that's putting this gift of sex in front of us and saying, hey, I've given you desires, I've given you genitalia, I've given you a desire for the opposite sex, but I want you to just struggle with it. I, want, I don't want you to actually participate in it. I, I, I want you to sort of suffer a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's not how God established the world. He doesn't offer us good things just kind of put it out in front of us and then try to withhold them because he wants us to suffer. He wants to be mean. God is a good God. So when he gives us something that's good, he puts boundaries around it so it doesn't become something that's bad. So again, sex is good within God's boundary laws. The serpent was able to convince Eve that he was holding out on her, that she should not, he, God didn't want her to eat the fruit because he knew that when she ate it, she, you know, she would know uh, everything there is to know about good and evil. She would be like God. He convinced her that God was not good. So I, I would actually argue in biblical theology that every sin is in some way, shape, or form connected to either a downplaying or an overt denial of the goodness of God. Hmm. And you just think about that. Trail it back. Any sin we commit, covetousness, I want it. Why don't God provide for us? It's You're, you're questioning God's provision. Why did I marry this person when I suddenly met this person over here and they just seemed to be so much nicer and so much more kind and so much more interested in me. You're downplaying or denying the providence of God. God has given me opportunities to eat what I want. Why can't I eat what I want? You know, regardless of my health concerns. You're, you're, you're again. We're, we have this weird idea that God is a cosmic killjoy, and Satan mm-hmm. has convinced us of that time and time again. And so has our own flesh. 
Well, we can apply that again to the area of, of, of human sexuality. And essentially when we lust, what we're saying is God isn't good. When we have sex outside of marriage, God isn't good. When we view pornography, we're fundamentally saying God isn't good. He, his plans are not as fun. They're not as good as the desires of my flesh or the supposed offers that the world give, puts in front of me, which are supposedly better. And this is why when you hear people that are challenged who are living in sexual immorality, godless people, they're like, oh, that's prudish. That's old-fashioned. You're trying to rob us of our freedom. You're trying to mm -hmm. rob us of our bodily autonomy. That's the Edenic lie. Mm -hmm. That's the Genesis 3 lie right there. And that their assumption is, is that their way of having sex, their way of expressing their sexual desires are better than God's, more satisfactory than God's. So what we have to do is we have to remind people in our preaching and teaching and the way we live and in our worship that the Creator sets the rules, and they are good. And we don't apologize for them. Creatures don't apologize to other creatures for what the Creator has said. I've said that many times. And the reason why we say that is we want to drive home the fact that we don't apologize for God. We preach unapologetically, and we do it because we actually believe that God is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good, by the way. Try His plans, and you will find they actually are good. They are, are better. Mm -hmm. Second, and this flows from the first, we, we've seen the destructive effects of sexual perversion. So what happens to people that are promiscuous? They pick up STIs. They can't stay married. They grow impotent over time. These are the consequences of sin. Women are increasingly drawn into it. We even know uh, we've had stories in our own Christian ministry of people that start off lustful thinking and then checking out some soft porn, then get into hard porn, then get into kitty porn, then get busted by the police. It's seen that happen many times. And you'll talk to some of these people and they'll say, I, I, I wasn't interested in children. I wasn't interested in you know, perverted pornography. It just sort of happened. Mm -hmm. just sort of, it's it's a, literally a slippery slope into the darkness. So it leads to criminal charges. For some, that can lead to jail, public embarrassment, divorce. How fun is that? Mm -hmm. Broken relationships with your kids, alimony payments, hatred toward a person that you love. It just doesn't sound fun to me, and it's not fun, because sexual sin is the ultimate false advertiser. On the surface, on the surface, it offers, it offers kind of a very temporary rush, very temporary pleasure. And we'll talk about the biology of that momentarily. And then immediately thereafter, it's emptiness. Mm -hmm. It's emptiness. And people who view pornography <clears throat> can testify to this, that there's this overwhelming desire to, to, to maybe fill your time because you're bored or you're not satisfied with your marriage or you're not walking with the Lord and you just have this, this desire to have this outlet. And then the pornography is viewed and then immediately thereafter, there's emptiness. It doesn't actually satisfy. But we, it's like we keep going back to a dry well. Mm -hmm. we, we keep trying to pull water out of a dry well. 
and it simply doesn't have the capacity to satisfy. So not only does God have commands and rules, but surprise, surprise, when we break them, the consequences are obvious. Mm -hmm. And when we obey them, the consequences are beautiful. So here's God's plan. God's plan is for heterosexual, marital, faithful, covenantal love, and it's always, 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 always uh, better. Mm-hmm. So those are some things for us to um, uh, consider. Okay, so most of our listeners presumably desire to live holy lives. Um, they're going to wrestle, obviously, with sins of the flesh like lust. So we're going to wrestle with these things. So what steps can people take to overcome lust and live holy lives before God? Well, as Christians, any attempt to overcome sexual sin has to start with repentance. I mean, that is ground zero. It has to start with obedience. It has to start with a forsaking, a mental, a spiritual, an an emotional acknowledgement that what I have done, what I have seen, the person I've been with, it's, it's wrong. How I've dressed is wrong. So it starts with repentance. We must fully acknowledge the evil that we have participated in. Now, I'll use porn as an example because I think it's probably the most prevalent way that people express their lust in in the current era. But and speaking of it more specifically, the principles apply to all, all expressions, adultery, fornication, immodest dress. And just think about this. So let's say a person is, is viewing pornography. Why, why is that evil? Why is that evil? We know it's evil. Christians know it's evil. So, for example, if a husband comes home and says to his wife, "Hey, honey, I, I just I just went to um, to a ball game," she might say, "That's great. I'm I'm glad you had a good time. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. How'd the game go?" And there's there's nothing offensive about that. If a husband goes out with his buddies for for wings and comes home and says to his wife, "Hey, I had a great time. I was out with the boys. We." You know, we, we enjoyed our time at, um, you know, the local pub or whatnot. It's like, oh, that, that's great. I hope you had a good time. As long as you didn't overeat, you know, it's, I hope you had a good time. But if husband comes home and says, I've been viewing pornography, she doesn't say, oh, that, that's great. I hope you had a good time and hope you enjoyed yourself. Mm-hmm. There's something about sexual sin, about sexual expression outside of marriage that's innately offensive to your spouse because there's there's something – it's not – all of those things could be in some ways pleasurable, but there's a violation there of the, the nature and essence of marriage. And it's because it violates the imago dei. It, it dehumanizes. When we have sex or experience in sex, uh, participate in sexual activities outside of uh, marriage, what we're actually doing is we're dehumanizing ourselves. We're, pornography is especially dangerous much like video games can be or social media can be and that it trains people to to find entertainment by themselves. And we live in a culture that's increasingly isolationistic. This is why I'm opposed and I'm not drawing a direct parallel, but this is why I'm opposed to Zoom church. This is why I I often speak out against video games. This is why I I often speak out against the overuse of social media. It doesn't mean that if a person 
watches an online service a couple times that they're a bad person or they they play the odd video game they're a bad person or they use social media they're a bad person but when these patterns become well when these things become patterns in our lives it's almost like we're entertaining ourselves or we're supposedly worship worshiping or we're experiencing relationships by ourselves. It breeds an isolationistic culture. This is part of the reason why we have massive mental health uh, issues in our cultures, because we are designed to be relational beings. We're made in the image and likeness of God. God is innately relational, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And sex is an innately relational uh, aspect of our humanity. And watching some anonymous person on the internet undress themselves or watching a sex tape or whatever it might be, it dehumanizes them, but it also dehumanizes self. It's like a denial of the relationality that exists within us. You know, it's also interesting in Genesis, uh, the the, the last part of Genesis chapter two talks about Adam and his wife being naked and not ashamed. And then in the opening few verses after sin, they're naked and ashamed. The nakedness is is fundamentally an acknowledgement of their vulnerability. They they're no longer protect fully living within God's protective laws. They're vulnerable to death. They're vulnerable to disease. They're vulnerable to attack. They're vulnerable to ridicule. They're vulnerable to sexual abuse. They're vulnerable to the elements. To be naked is to be vulnerable. And what pornography tries to do is. It, it tries to reverse the effects of the fall by giving us opportunities to see another person in their nakedness without redemption having first impacted that relationship. So when we, the reason why, uh, of course, it's, it's natural for a, a, a man to appreciate the nakedness of a female. It's natural for a female to appreciate the nakedness of a man within the bounds of of marriage. But pornography is false intimacy. It it advertises itself as a form of marital intimacy, as a place where you could view a naked body apart from the redemptive work of Christ in that relationship without consequence. And in that respect, it's it's the nakedness of the fall without the repentance that's required to counteract the effects of the fall on a relationship. It's essentially voyeurism from, from a distance. And it's an attempt to enjoy the nakedness of another without commitment, without love, without the need to pursue, without the need to communicate, without the need to future, uh, mutually submit to Christ or live under the sovereign reign of Christ. All it actually accomplishes is opportunities for self-gratification. And self-gratification, self-sex, masturbation, for example, the danger there is that it breeds further isolation and selfishness so that what what masturbation does is it, it trains your body to find pleasure in and of itself. It's, it's actually only a step removed from homosexuality in that respect. And that the man who masturbates or the woman who masturbates learns to find sexual satisfaction in their own body, in themselves, instead of learning. And, and you know, young, young unmarried people who are looking forward to marriage might find this difficult to understand. But couples that are married and 
who are having sex with one another in a biblical way over the course of many years and many de- many decades, there's innate pleasure there, but they also have to learn how to have sex. They have to learn how to find freshness in uh, and with the body of someone that you're already familiar with. So there's a, a certain, the, the beauty of marital love is it forces you to continue to pursue the other. It, it forces you to continue to um, enjoy the sexuality of the other, not to grow bored with it, not to grow dissatisfied with it, but to, to continue to be enthralled with the other, not just, I mean, there's other ways in which we should be enthralled with our spouses, not just in the area of sexuality, but it's certainly the zenith or the pinnacle of that male-female enjoyment in the, in the sexual uh, relationship that we call marriage. All other forms of sex breed isolation and selfishness. One night stands do. Homosexuality is essentially just having sex with yourself. And I think one of the reasons, by the way, that a lot of people drift into homosexuality is in a, in a strange way, it's almost safe. Like for a man to pursue a woman for, for life and to realize, I don't care how long you've been married. I'll say this to the guys that are listening. I don't care how long you've been married. If you said to me, I completely and totally understand my wife, I'd say you're a liar. And then I'll say this to the women. If you are married to a man, you're like, I got him down. I know him like the back of my hand. I would say you're you're delusional. It's not necessary to fully and completely know and figure out your husband and wife. Men and women are different, and there's mystery there. And that mystery is humbling, and that mystery is beautiful. One of the great things about being married to the opposite sex is there's a lifetime of compatibility, but it's overlaid with a lifetime of mystery. You don't, like, I never really fully understand my wife, but that's not a bad thing. That's a beautiful thing. And in heterosexual, sexual, um, in heterosexual intercourse, there's two people that are both human, that are com- compatible, but very different. And there's always mystery there, which is part of the driving force in our pursuit of the other relationally and sexually. Well, in homosexuality, you're just basically, um, you know, having, having sex with someone that's like you. And I think on a deep psychosocial level, it's often attractive to people because it's, it's considered safe. There's no mystery there. It's very animalistic. And, uh, this is why you know, statisticians and researchers have said this time and time again that people that have often been sexually molested, so if a woman's molested by a man, is often driven into the arms of another woman because it feels safer than being around men who, who've abused her, and um, and then you know the same could be said for for men. Maybe it's a little different in that when when boys are sexually assaulted by men. In a, in a desire to find that, that father figure, that safety, they often retreat into the arms of other men. But uh, that's that's certainly uh, something for us to consider and ho- hopefully helps people to understand the need for, for us to start with repentance and uh, to fully acknowledge the evil that it is. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so steps towards overcoming it. We got repentance is obviously step one. Yep. That's number one. We also would acknowledge you have to have changed the way you think. Yep. And so let's assume that repentance has taken place. What are some helpful changes 
to the way we think that can, can assist us to live holy lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, there's a change of the mind, and then there's a change of actions. A lot of young guys, when I disciple them, you know, it's like, give me three steps to overcome my porn addiction. Okay, well, I can give you very practical advice, but let's start with the mind. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a renewal of the mind. We're called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And there's there's many things that we need to think differently about in order to overcome sexual sin and lust. But I want to emphasize this. Don't, don't diminish the importance of thinking differently in order to overcome any sin in your life. The legalist says, you know, here's five things you need to do. And there are some things we need to do and things we shouldn't be doing to help us to overcome sin. But how about the mind? One major one would be when you repent, don't then live in shame and condemnation. Never, ever, ever believe the lie that this is your identity. If you're a Christian, never believe the lie, well, I've tried 10 times. I just can't overcome my my lustful thoughts. Therefore, it's just my lot in life. A lot of, a lot of people live in shame and condemnation. They don't actually believe in the power of the gospel. Now, we're all into conviction. We're absolutely into conviction. But reread Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by sinful man. God did by sending his own son in a likeness of sinful man. So there we have, if you are in Christ, we're not trying to excuse sin, but if you've repented, then in that repentance, there should be a sense of healthy, holy optimism, that this is not my identity. I, I am not doomed to a life of lust and unfaithfulness. It's not my identity. The tendency is for us to fixate on one shameful sin, and that's anti-gospel. The other thing I would say is that if, let's say you have a, a lust problem and you repented of it and then you fall again and you repent of that, it's tempting to spend all your time thinking about how to overcome that, and you're not allowing God to sanctify you in other areas that may be, in a sense, part of that problem or maybe distinct from that problem. Maybe you have an anger issue. Maybe you have a trust issue. Maybe you don't really believe what the Bible says about who you are, that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Maybe you have some stinking thinking about uh, about. Um, value in life or your identity or your worth. I'm just focusing on the fact I look at pornography again. Mm-hmm. No, you have to you have to acknowledge it, but here's how it should work. I sinned. I, I, I feel the shame of that sin. I immediately go to Christ. I ask forgiveness of sin. And I move on. And I don't move on and then think about it again five minutes later, an hour later, and mull it over and then feel terrible about it, on and on and on and on and on. I'm not trying to diminish the gravity of sin. But if you're a person that's repented, presumably you acknowledge its sinfulness, and you need to quickly repent and stop wallowing in the mud Mm -hmm. of your past sin and shame. Secondly, there's, there's several things that, that are helpful, I think, in terms of the way you view the person or the image that you're lusting after. So I, I think a lot of people that you know, they see the scantily clad woman or the half-naked guy on the street or they, you know, they're on the beach or they, 
you know, they're online looking at something, they're watching some movie, some scene pops up, and they're they're enjoying in their flesh the moment. But have you ever thought about the per, the the humanity of the person that you're looking at? This this is a helpful this is helpful for us. We need to learn first of all to despise the behavior of the people that create pornography. To despise the behavior of someone who walks half naked down the street. To despise the behavior of someone who chooses to wear skimpy lingerie and put it on a poster in the middle of a mall. These people are making money by offering you sinful pleasures. We need to learn to despise that behavior in the same way that we would maybe naturally despise the behavior of someone who's beating someone up on the street or robbing someone else's um, possessions. Pornographers are bad, bad people. And when we view their material, we're supporting their material. They make money off of destroying marriages. Think about that. The scantily clad woman that you're gawking at on the internet, she's making money off of destroying marriages. She's making money off of luring people into more deviant sexual crimes. It may be heterosexual porn, but she's opening the doorway to pedophilia, to bestiality, to a rape culture. This is, this is who you're actually looking at. She's, she's making money off of spreading disease and promoting a lifestyle of spreading disease. By the way, the porn industry, which makes a lot of money, also costs millions of dollars to economies by um, causing the spread of STIs, mm-hmm. which, which causes, costs taxpayers money, um, breakdown of marriages leading to alimony payments and financial devastation for families, divorce courts, broken marriages. These are not, these are not we know that their actions are wrong, but think about how bad this behavior is and how destructive their behavior is. And we need to learn to see it for what it is. We need to despise their behavior, to be angry at their behavior. Hmm. Secondly to that, we need to learn to pity them because they've objectified themselves. They've demoralized themselves. They've dehumanized themselves by supporting a lie to support their efforts. They're steeped in lies. They're, they're shallow people. They're shallow people that find uh, no, no interest in the development of the mind or the heart or virtues. They're, they're destructive and cancerous upon human society. And then the third thing in this category is to rehumanize them. When you're looking at a young woman who's revealing herself for the world to see in an online porn site or some young girl flitting through the mall half-dressed, you you need to understand that's someone's daughter. Mm-hmm. As much as you might despise their behavior, that's a person that's made in the image and likeness of God that's turned themselves into a piece of meat. And... That person, someone's son, someone's daughter, possibly a mother, possibly a future mother, possibly a dad, possibly a future dad, is a person that God loves, and they're living in shame. And when you give them attention, when you give them attention, what you're actually doing is you're encouraging them to live the lie. Mm -hmm. 
and encouraging them to live in that kind of shame. I, I know that some women, we, we know statistically that more men are likely to view pornography than women. Women still fall into that trap, but more men are likely to do it. But more women are likely to dress in provocative ways because they, they desire the attention of men than men are, are, are likely to do that. Mm -hmm. So men look at the pornography, the bulk of the pornography, but women, in a sense, produce the bulk of the pornography, not just on the screen, but also on the street. And so we have a major issue. And shockingly, we have Christians that are offended when you say this, even Christian women. When you say, you need to talk to your daughter. She's dressed immodestly. You're actually teaching your daughter mm -hmm. to objectify herself, to dehumanize herself, to make herself a piece of meat for the viewing pleasure of other men. So these, these are some, these are some uh, you know, mental exercises that I, th I think are helpful to go through. See, see porn, see the scantily clad person on the street corner, for who they are, and at the same time, change our mind about the nature and power of the gospel to help us to overcome. These are, now, action and thinking are never disjointed, but these are more in the area of, uh, you know, I encourage people to change the way they think, and this, this changing of, of, of thinking certainly has also been helpful for me, because mm -hmm. I'm not going to give this podcast and somehow present myself as a guy that's never lusted. That would be a, a, a lie. But these are things that I've found to be helpful over the years to 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 help resist temptation and embrace righteousness. Yeah. As you talk about thinking, I think one of the concepts that has helped me a lot is understanding what the world calls liberation is the devil's deception of it's actually slavery. So the sexual liberation movement was actually a sexual enslavement movement. Yeah, good point. But People call it different terms, but it doesn't, you can dress it up, but it actually is enslaved and people are enslaved to these passions. Good for evil, evil for good. The exactly. devil loves the flip-flop. Yep. He, he always takes that which is evil and tries to make it good and take that which is good and tries to make it evil. We see this in the conversion therapy garbage. They've criminalized trying to have a conversation with someone. If you have a conversation with someone and say, you know, you, you should conform your behavior to creational heterosexuality, that's a crime, but it's not a crime to, t to tell a young child who's a boy, hey, you should chop some parts off and become yeah. a girl. It's a flip-flop of good mm -hmm. for evil, evil for good. Mm -hmm. And we see that on all levels of society. Yep. Any antichrist society, you're going to see that on all levels of society. Yeah. So we've talked about thinking. So pr bring us through some like practical do steps. What yep. are some tangible steps? One of the most practical steps that has many people have talk about this and promote this, unfortunately, when you talk to people who are involved, for instance, in pornography or serial affairs, you always discover they don't have these things present. Yep. And that is you need to establish airtight boundaries to literally starve yourself from accessing anything that would cause you to compromise. Now, the question is, are... Are you actually willing to do that? If you're not willing to do that, then you're not actually repentant. But if you want to guard yourself from having an affair, for example, well, affairs always start with conversations, always. So you just don't have inappropriate communication 
with a member of the opposite sex. Or if you've struggled with homosexuality, you don't have inappropriate communication with someone of the same sex. Just don't do it. You don't spend prolonged time alone with someone that you might be tempted to be sexually intimate with. You don't have unsecured devices. Let me say it again. You don't have unsecured devices. Let me say it again. You don't have unsecured devices. I hear of people, they have uh, some sort of block software on their phone, but they got an old cell phone laying in their front drawer they can fire up any time mm-hmm. and still access pornography. Well, what's the point? They still have some old laptop stashed away downstairs. They can fire it up and view pornography. They put uh, Covenant Eye software or some other software on there, and then they, they create programs to get around it. Well, mm-hmm. then you're not repentant. So what you want to do is you want to throw out, get rid of any of the portals, if you will, through which you'll access an inappropriate relationship or inappropriate image. Surprise, surprise, shock of all shocks. Do you know there was a time when we actually got along as a society without the internet? We did. <laughs> yes, yes, we did. <laughs> I know, remember it, that day. It's it, we, We're so connected. People think, well, I, I got it. No, you don't have to be connected. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have a cell phone. You absolutely don't have to have a smartphone, for sure. You don't have to have access to the internet. You don't have to have Amazon Prime. You don't have to have Netflix. You don't have to have these things. Mm-hmm. You do not have to have them. And if they're a temptation t- to you to the point that even with software and that, you can't get by without them, get rid of them. Mm-hmm. If you're actually a man or woman of holiness, get rid of them. Dress appropriately. Um, the older women should be confronting the younger women when they dress immodestly to try to get other people's uh, attention. Just because you're not having, ladies, just because you're not having sex with some other guy doesn't mean that walking around in provocative clothing to get their attention is somehow justified. It's not justified. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not suggesting that women need to throw on burlap sacks. Mm -hmm. And we're not suggesting they need to wear... um, you know, 24-7 head coverings or something like that. By the way, let me just make this comment. In the hadiths of Islam, there's a requirement to wear the head covering. And so we've seen a revival in the West of women that want to display their orthodoxy wearing head coverings to cover their hair. But then you look at the rest of their attire, and it's it's as immoral as every other Western woman. And then their, their faces are plastered with makeup and whatnot. They're there's the, there's the hypocrisy of the whole head covering thing or saying, you know, if you just if you just wear the right article of clothing or the right head covering, the problem solved and people won't lust. Ultimately, it's a matter of the heart because people always find ways to abide by the rules but actually break the principle. Yep. So I don't want people to think that, that we're trying to just moralize them, that if you do step A, B, and C, that the problem's going to be solved. But at the same time, at the same time, we know that it's impossible to get drunk if you don't have access to alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to get high if you don't have access to drugs. It's impossible to have an affair if you don't have inappropriate relationships and connections with the opposite sex. And it's impossible to view pornography if you don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. So you you can't necessarily stop someone you know, going across the crosswalk in front of you scantily clad, but there's... It's it's 100% possible to completely block access to pornography. And don't tell me that it's not, mm-hmm. okay? But if if you're, especially if you're a member of the younger generation, 
and you've got you've grown up where it's you're you're just connected to all this stuff. Maybe you need to extricate yourself from mm-hmm. it. By the way, it's only going to get worse. If you think pornography is a problem now, wait uh, wait till they develop virtual opportunities, hologram prostitutes, or who knows what they have totally. in mind, yep. sex robots, all sorts of things that people can participate in. A lot of the video games that people play nowadays are laden with with violence against women, scantily clad women. What woman is going to walk out on a battlefield among a horde of Vikings, half naked, swinging her sword and sickle? But this is the kind of absolute fantastical garbage that a lot of young men are exposed to, Christian men that are participating in this stuff. So you have to produce airtight boundaries so that in the moment of temptation, when you're looking to the left, right, and center for something to view, you just don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. It's just not there. And then you pray and the temptation goes away. But if, but it can, it can sneak up on you, right? In a, mm-hmm. in a feeling of loneliness, isolation, self-doubt, you're, you're quickly looking for a, 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 a quick fix, some pleasure. And uh, if you have access to it, whether it's Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the various social media platforms or other aspects of the internet or video games or movies, things you subscribe to, um, whatever it might be. You just cut yourself off from it. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the passage in scripture where the Lord's saying, you know, basically how severe are you taking sin? If it's caused, if your right hand causes you sin, Cut it off. Cut it off, yeah. Um, and so it's a one about a severity of sin. And then two, I think pridefully a lot of us think we're stronger than we are, not oh, realizing. Yeah. Oh, it's been six months. I haven't looked at it so I can remove covenant eyes from my phone. Dumb. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I haven't looked at pornography for two years so I can go back to uh, you know having all this devices. Stupid. Yeah. It's not, it's not, not wise. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph when he was presented with opportunities to have sex with Potiphar's wife, laced up his running shoes and jetted out the door. Didn't even stick around in the room. Uh, Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a young woman. Bouncing of the eyes. You know, they've often said, the first look you're not responsible for. What they mean by that is, if someone walks into your visual path and they're dressed inappropriately, there's no way of stopping that. But following them with your eyes or watching them from a distance is a problem. Or let's say on an emotional level, you know, you, you meet someone, maybe even at church, maybe at school, maybe in your small group, and there's this emotional connection there, and you don't bring that captive unto Christ. This is this is a, a challenge for a lot of women. And maybe you're in you're you don't have a husband and you perceive this guy to be super spiritual and you start to fantasize about what it might be like to be in a relationship with him. And all, all of a sudden, it's lustful thoughts. So you have to take these things captive in Christ. So we're going to be, in a broken world, we're going to be exposed to sin. But we, we need to be on our guard and be hypervigilant at all times but to, to, so that we're equipped to deal with that. But then at the same time, not to unnecessarily expose ourselves to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. What's your thought on accountability partners? I know that's often part of this conversation. It's a plus and a minus depending on how it's used. Accountability partners can be good. 
But if you have an account, an accountability partner, let's say you're a guy, you have a buddy, you you know, you get together monthly, weekly, whatever it might be, and you ask hard questions. Hey, dude, did you look at pornography this week? Did you mess around with your girlfriend? Uh, is there anybody at work you have an inappropriate relationship with? And the guy's like, Yeah, you know, I I did. Yeah, I, I looked at pornography. Okay, bro. Well. We'll pray together and let's meet again next week. That's not accountability. Mm-hmm. Accountability is taking your buddy to the wire. It's actually having consequences attached. It's the next time you view pornography, I'm coming over to your house with a ball-peen hammer and I'm smashing your computer and you will give me written permission to do that. That's accountability. The next time uh, you view pornography, I'm going to take you out in the back 40 and whack you a couple times with a two-by-four. <laughs> That's accountability. I'm going to tell your wife. I'm going to go to the past or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. That's accountability, a, a willingness to actually take concrete steps to discipline the other uh, out of sin, not just a chat fest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting. And I don't think that's been for many people modeled or seen. And so the accountability partners, I just know how it goes. Like you mentioned, it's it's a conversation and it can be actually a enablement yeah an enablement i was going to say where it's dangerously you think you're doing something but the disease is only growing so what i've said to the guys in our discipleship group is we we want to create a a a venue where people are open to genuinely share their struggles that they want to repent of or repenting of and there's it's not like the first time a guy reveals a sin you're necessarily going to crack the whip but there's there's an immediate response and then over time if you continue in that there's consequences so for example if You've been coming out to a discipleship group for six months, and every time it's like, yeah, I viewed again, I viewed again, I viewed again. At some point, you're, you will be disciplined. And that, you know, that's going to involve a biblical process. And uh, leading right through to potentially excommunication, the whole biblical concept of turning the person over to Satan, let him buffet their body. It's like, okay, you want to live for the devil? Go, go live in the devil's camp and see how nice he really is. Mm-hmm. Let him beat the tar out of you for a while. Go ahead, lose your, uh, you lose your honor. Lose your marriage, lose your money, lose your health. See how the devil really go 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 find out if he's actually as benevolent mm-hmm. as he'd like you to think. So that's that's my thinking on accountability partners. Yeah. That's good. Now, um, kind of continuing on in this vein of practical steps, the Bible talks about uh, sexual passion, and in First Corinthians seven nine, it says it's better to marry than burn with with passion. Now, we don't want people to think that that's the sole purpose of marriage. You don't go up to a girl and say, hey, you know, I'd like to marry you because I'm burning with passion. <laughs> you don't go up to a guy and say, I just really like to have sex. Look, can we get married? There's there's more to it than that. But one of the practical blessings and benefits of Christian marriage is the opportunity to have pure and unadulterated sex in a covenant. So God didn't, that's another example of where God didn't create sexual desire to be frustrated. So what couples need to do is they need to learn to focus and even reserve their sexual energies for their spouse. So you, your sexual energy when you're 18 might seem unlimited, but everyone has a limit to their sexual energy. And when I talk about sexual energy, I'm not just talking about the physiological aspect to it, the, the emotional, the spiritual, the, 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 the intimacy of, of sexuality. It's a body, soul, mind experience. You have a limit to that. And when you, when you 
release that sexual energy, it takes a while to build back up. We see this, I don't want to get too graphic, but we see this even in uh, the human orgasm. The, the hum, you don't, when a person is having sex and they come to a point of climax or orgasm, it doesn't last infinitely. It comes to a peak and then it stops. And there's a period of time before that can happen again, right? For both, both men and women, it's not unlimited. It comes to a peak and then it stops. There's a limit to the, to the passion a person can express. And marriage is the place for us to express that passion. But if a person, for instance, is married and they're viewing pornography all the time, they're actually burning off the passion, the fuel, if you will, that God has designed for you to express to your spouse. And so we have many stories through counseling and conversation of people that literally wear themselves out sexually because of their porn addictions, and they have nothing to offer to their spouses. They, they literally wear themselves out to the point, and I, I hope this does scare a lot of people, to the point, especially for, for men, that they can become literally impotent. Why do you think the blue pill's so popular? Mm-hmm. The blue pill's popular, and it's being administered to younger and younger men because people are burned out sexually. So lust reduces rather than increases satisfaction. You hear uh, on occasion stories of couples, well, to spruce up our sex life, we're going to view pornography together. Well, that's the death knell of your, your sex life right there. Mm-hmm. Even, even secular research shows that porn re- reduces your libido. It leads to depression because you're, you're releasing your sexual desires in a way that's non-relational. And that leads to isolation. Isolation leads to depression. Basically, it works this way from like a scientific perspective. If someone's, let's say, viewing pornography, what what happens in uh, the sexual act is that the brain produces or releases dopamine and other chemicals. Porn hyperstimulates the brain with dopamine. And because it, it... you can be um, viewing it all the time, hours a day, uh, often very dramatized, unrealistic images. So porn hyperstimulates the brain with dopamine, which literally wears it out and reduces the ability of the brain to produce it during marital sex. So if people that are viewing pornography that are hyperstimulated by dopamine, then they jump in bed with their spouse and they're impotent. And they can't seem to get it, and they don't. They don't understand why. Mm-hmm. So they they end up impotent or unable to have sex properly, or unable to have sex without drawing upon the sexual imagery that they've experienced through pornography. And literally, literally, this leads to brain damage, and even the inability to regulate your emotions because your brain and your body wasn't de- wasn't designed by God to experience that constant rush of dopamine. So you're literally damaging your brain hmm. and damaging your and and thereby damaging your body chemistry and then you can just make the connections on your own to mental health and body chemistry issues and depression and obesity and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. So I think that many of the causes of mental health in our society are actually sexual in nature. There's a decreased interest in actual sex. 
if I meet a young Christian man and he's like, ah, you know, I'm not, I'm not really uh, all that interested in getting married. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait. I'm like, yeah, you're a porn addict, hmm. or you've participated in pornography, because the natural trajectory of life is when a person comes to sexual maturity, there's going to be an expression of that for 99.9% of people. There has to be, and they're either gonna pursue marriage as God has designed, so they don't burn with passion or they're gonna start having sex with people they shouldn't be having sex with, or they have artificial sex, and then it just delays the need to get married, and by the time they get married, they're kind of burnt out, and they don't really have the passion that they're, they're uh, to express to their wife that, um, that she deserves. Now, I don't wanna freak people out, but I would say that more often than not, there, there's other reasons for this, but more often than not, if you're a younger couple and your spouse is disinterested in sex, you better have a conversation about porn use. Better have a conversation about it. So all this is to say, Chris, surprise, 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 God's laws are protective after all. Mm-hmm. And we need to be scared and we need to be concerned that sin is such a false advertiser. It says it provides something and it does not. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that uh, when you hear testimony from people that have lived sexually uh, immoral life lifestyles and then come to the Lord or realize when when they share the pain, the brokenness, the STIs, like no no advertisement on TV or movie ever talks about STIs. You right. don't you don't see the consequences. You you see a a fake sexual practice stuff it's that's not realistic it's right? glamorized it's you know the 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 10 young couples working in the fire station the the 10 young cops the 10 young factory workers none of them are married yep they're going around having sex with whoever they want everything's good that's all smoke and mirrors mm-hmm. these people are moving towards intimate uh, impotence depression anxiety disease it's all smoke and mirrors mm-hmm. it's the devil's ploy to try to make you think the living in the graveyards of life are, is actually fun. Mm-hmm. It's death. All sin leads to death. All sin. All sin leads to death. It's it's darkness masquerading as the light. And when we when we shine the light on it, the light of God's word, the beauty of God's providential laws, suddenly it's like, wow, that is pretty ugly. Lust is an ugly thing, and sexual mm-hmm. sin's an ugly thing. We need to remind ourselves of that all the time. Yeah. Okay, here's a, a third very practical step. So simple, so little practiced. Let's say that you uh, have struggled with lust and you've analyzed the steps. And here's what you've noticed. Before you look, before you send that text, before you have that inappropriate conversation, just before that, you can feel the temptation. The temptation always precedes the action. Here's what you need to do. In that moment, believing that God is faithful, believing that he's not a cosmic killjoy, pray this line out of a Lord's Prayer, and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, Lord. Try it. I can guarantee you this, If you pray that prayer, 100% of the time, God will answer it positively. God's desire is not for you to succumb to temptation. Mm -hmm. The Lord's prayer is real. It's given to us by a real God. 
There's, there's times when people will sin. They don't want to pray their prayer. They feel the temptation. They want to do the sin. Mm. They refuse to pray the Lord's Prayer. That's right. But if you're a man or woman of God and you want to grow closer to the Lord, in the moment of temptation, I found this in my own life, 100% of the time it works. In that moment, if I say, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, the Lord will always see fit to give me the strength to overcome, 100% of the time. If he doesn't do it 100% of the time, then he's not a God to be trusted and he's lying to us. Mm -hmm. But he is a God that can be trusted and he's not lying to us. So pray the Lord's Prayer in the moment. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Mm -hmm. The only person that's not going to pray that is a person that's not truly repentant and who wants to sin. Here's a fourth one, renounce isolation. We're relational beings. We can't survive in isolation. So renounce isolation and embrace Christ-centered relationships. Stay busy doing profitable things. Last week we talked about sloth. Renounce sloth. The reason why so many people drift into um, sexual sin is because of slothfulness. They're not, they're not busy enough. You don't have a lot of time to um, view pornography when you're bailing hay. You don't have time to view pornography when you're painting the basement. You don't have time to view pornography when you're washing the dishes. You don't have time to view pornography when you're actually studying for the exam that's coming up. But in the Western world, we've reduced the work week down from six days to five, and in many respects to four. We complain because, oh, I got to show up at work at nine, and I got to work all the way through till five. Okay, that's a third of your day. We give ourselves all of us time at the beginning and end of the day, these long lunch breaks, multiple weeks off, sitting on beaches, traveling to the cottage. We have more expendable time than any generation in, in history. And what do we do with that? Uh, we're browsing reels on social media. We're playing video games. We're too lazy to go to church, so we're watching Zoom church, Gnostic church, in other words disembodied church. People spend countless hours binging on Netflix episodes. All of these things, as I mentioned earlier, are training you to find entertainment by yourself. And if not by yourself, to be overly entertained. So you train yourself. Think about this. You train yourself to be entertained. You train yourself to live for the weekend. You don't, you cannot, for a lot of Westerners, it's like they can't wrap their mind around the redemptive value of work. They can't wrap their mind around the joy of work. They don't like to work. They, they work, but they don't really want to work. A Christian should want to work. We should want to sweat. We should want to have sore backs and sore muscles. We should want to use our brains. We don't live for the weekend. We don't live for you know, the, the, the lunch bell. We don't live for recess if we're students. Mm -hmm. These are not bad things. We believe in Sabbath keeping, but we need to learn to work and we need to renounce isolation. If you stay busy doing profitable things and you renounce sloth, you won't have time to be viewing pornography. So a simple, simple solution for many people Get busy. Get another job. Serve at your church. Stop lounging around on Saturday mornings doing nothing. Stop lounging around at night. Put your phone away. Mm -hmm. Turn off your laptop. I mean, basic stuff. 
But our society is so hyper-connected to these isolationistic technologies and forms of entertainment that it's destroying people. So all of these provide entertainment by isolation. If you're going to watch TV, if you're going to play video games, if you're going to go on vacation, it's always recommended that you do it with someone else. Train yourself to be a relational being. Mm -hmm. Train yourself to be, it's, it's the hard work. Is there vulnerability there? Yes. Could there be irritation and frustration there depending on who the person is? Yes. But train yourself to be a relational being. And then I have another one. Now, I would say this is probably next to the statement I made about the Lord's Prayer, the least practiced discipline in the Christian church today. And it's leading to all kinds of problems. It's the discipline of fasting. Now, I know that the fitness gurus of our age have put a pretty big emphasis lately on intermittent fasting because we worship our bodies. Everybody wants to be fit, not because of stewardship for the most part, but because they want attention. That's a subject for another conversation. But there's intermittent fasting. But do people actually understand biblical fasting? Now, there's six or seven reasons to fast in the Scripture. Sometimes it's a prayer of repentance. But if you if you think about fasting, when I my so we're 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 biological beings in part, and our bodies require food, and we have lots of access to it in our culture and drink. So every day we get up and we might have a coffee and then breakfast and then we putter through our day and some people have their morning snack and then eventually lunch and then maybe an afternoon snack and then dinner and then maybe an evening snack or you know whatever your routine is. People have different. Some people skip breakfast, but you get my point. We're constantly uh, feeding ourselves. And so this trains our bodies. If I feel a little bit of hunger, I just go to the cupboard and I immediately assuage the hunger. A little bit thirsty, immediately go get myself a drink. It's hot outside, person grabs a beer, another person grabs a fresca, whatever it might be, right? So our bodies are in fleshed aspect is used to being immediately satisfied whenever it has a craving. Well, sexual desires are mental, spiritual, but they're largely physical as well. Physical. Our bodies desire sex. God has designed us to, to pursue um, sex, um, sexual expression, I, I guess you could say. We have sexual desires. It's a clear way to put it. And you got people around there, oh, I'm just struggling with sins of the flesh. I, I can't control my sexuality. Well, can you control your, have you ever learned to control your stomach? Oh, no, I don't, I don't fast. I, you know, I'm, I'm a diabetic. I, you know, I got to have food regularly. I, I, I get a headache if I don't eat on all sorts of reasons, valid or invalid as to why people don't fast. I don't understand the reason for it. Well, think about it this way. Now I'm not, I'm not advocating for some dualistic disenfranchised view of humanity. But think of it this way, if you have two people, or if I think of myself this way, if, if, I, if my spiritual man, if you want to call it that, wants to discipline the flesh, one of the things I could say to my flesh is, um, okay, for the next two days or the next month, the next week, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to feed you. I'm going to fast. I'm not going to feed you. What happens when you fast? I, I know what happens when you fast. The first day... The first few hours, like, okay, this isn't so bad. I skipped a meal, no big deal. Kind of feeling good about the fact I was able to skip a meal. Saved a few money at bucks in the grocery yeah. bill. And then um, meal number two, it's like, okay, this is, this is um, I'm starting to feel this a little bit. 
after a day, two days, whatever it might be, your body is screaming for nutrients, screaming for food. And the temptation is, well, I'm going to feed it because it's it really wants to be fed. But what if you say, no, I'm not I'm not feeding you? And what happens is it'll scream, it'll it'll cuss at you, it'll desire food. But over time, as it's weakened because it's not fed, when things aren't fed, they're weakened. It slowly is quieted, and the spiritual man, if you will, now asserts himself as the dominant determinant of one's activities and priorities. If more Christians fasted and learned to actually control the, fl the flesh in the area of food, those, those abilities are transferable to the area of sexual control. So we're called to be self-controlled. How do you learn to be self-controlled if you've never deprived your body of anything, anything? If it's hungry, you, you, you give it food. If it's thirsty, you give it a drink. If it's, if it's wet, you dry it off. If it's too dry, you jump in the pool, right? How do you... How does a person learn self-control in a culture that has everything, mm -hmm. plus, 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 mm -hmm. plus? Well, practice the discipline of fasting. And over time, you will learn to discipline your flesh and to remind you that man does not live by bread alone, mm -hmm. but by every word that flows from the mouth of God. So in, in the discipline of f fasting, it's not just a, some weight loss gimmick, but the discipline of fasting enables us to learn to practice self-control over our physical bodies. So if you've said to yourself, I've tried everything, I've prayed, I've been to counseling, start fasting and tell me if that doesn't help you to overcome and to learn to control your flesh in a way that brings honor and glory to God. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to, to wrap up, I think one of the very important aspects we need to touch on is the fact that lust is not a victimless crime. It's not a victimless sin. So if we have offended others or violated marital commitments, tell us, like, walk us through what needs to happen. Well, it's probably not a wise thing to walk up to a complete stranger and say, hey, I just, you know, I was just checking you out. Um, but in in relationships where we know the other person and we've sinned against them. So specific, I'm thinking of marriage. The Bible says in James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then it goes on to say the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We don't really practice this that much as Protestants because we're like, we don't want to be Catholic. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I have a relationship with God. He's my great high priest. I have direct access to him. We emphasize that theology a whole lot. But we don't emphasize the supposed Catholic theology of James 5. Well, it's, it's not Catholic theology. Uh, well, it is in a certain sense. It's universal theology for the whole church. But it's not a Roman Catholic doctrine here. It's just basic biblical truth. It's biblical doctrine. So there is a sense in Scripture what, that we do need to confess our sins to one another. Now, this needs to be done carefully and obviously for the right reason because I've seen at times where, let's say a person is overwhelmed with a sin and they go, let, let, let's say it's a, um, because we're talking about pornography a lot, let's say it's a, a pornographic addiction and the husband goes and confesses to his wife. 
Before he confesses to his wife, he needs to ask himself this simple question, why am I confessing to my wife? Is it to like transfer my burden onto her? Mm. Um, you know, she may be a, in a place where she feels especially vulnerable and that's the, the timing isn't right and it's very destructive for her to hear that. You, you go away feeling the burden's been lifted and she goes away feeling horrible about the situation. So you need to analyze and assess. So you, you want to make sure that you, you do confess your sins to others, but you also need to pick the right timing and the circumstances and assess your motives. Um, that aside, when you do confess to someone, I would also say it doesn't need to be super detailed and graphic. You could actually cause that person to stumble. That's right. You know, in Ephesians 5, verses 11 to 13, it says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, which is part of the confessional process. But then it goes on to say, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So there's this theology there of exposure, exposing sin, but not speaking of the things they do in secret. So I would advise... For example, if someone is confessing a pornographic addiction, your spouse says, well, what sites have you been looking at? And you're, oh, here's a list. Don't No, they shouldn't ask for that. You shouldn't provide that. You know, I've been struggling with lust. Well, name the people you've been lusting after. It's, it's, that's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. But there should be, uh, you know, at, at, at key times, opportunities for confession. When we do confess our sins to, to others, assuming we've picked the timing and we've unpacked it properly and there's true contrition there, it often opens the door for heightened communication in all areas of relationship. So at first it might, we might resist it because like, well, m now my spouse isn't going to trust me. But if it's done properly and it becomes a normal part of your spousal relationship to confess sin and to, and to genuinely deal with it and to ask for prayer and to work together, it can actually increase trust and, and increase, not if... It's not going to increase trust if you're not truly repentant. If you're like, yeah, I, I looked again, I looked again, I had another affair, I did this. I did. It's not going to increase trust. But there is a certain appreciation that godly people have for those that are willing to um, confess their sin. Oftentimes, it's helpful to confess our sin, too, to someone of the same sex uh, as the first step. And just to kind of get their their opinion, someone that's maybe a little bit removed from the offense, to get their opinion on how much you should share or not share with your spouse. So I'm not advocating for secrecy, but I'm not, I am advocating for wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, we we want to expose sin to the light, but we're not. We don't want to wallow in the sin, and we don't want to get all graphic with others. I I even I would even say this when people have uh, give their testimonies. Yep. Sometimes people give their testimonies, and they're like, "Well, tell me what you did," and they start giving all these details. Okay, just a second. I don't want to hear anymore. Mm -hmm. I get the gist. I don't need to know about the woman you had sex with at work and the pornography you engaged in and the sexual deviant acts. I don't want to know that. Mm -hmm. you, you, you've told me you have an issue. I get it. I don't need to know the details. It's not redemptive at all. So confession can open the door to that meaningful relationship. And it, it also, it's obviously we want to confess our sins to the Lord, but when we have to look someone in the eye right across the table or mm -hmm. across the, beside us on the couch and say, I feel horrible, but I got to tell you, I've broken covenant or I've done something terribly wrong. In that moment, 
that is embarrassing and hard and difficult. But in a Christian relationship, that can be turned into something very beautiful and redemptive. Mm -hmm. So we would encourage that. It's mm -hmm. good. Those are some practical steps. We talked about things ch changing the way you think. Yep. And then some practical things that you can do or not do to protect yourself from uh, sexual sin. Hopefully this is helpful. We don't want people to be mired in um, in sin. We don't want people to wallow in it. We want people to overcome. You can overcome. Yes. Never give up trying to overcome. Never throw in the towel. Never give in. You know, keep fighting the good fight and know that you have the Holy Spirit of God and his beautiful grace to sustain you. And even in your own flesh, when you've tried all the tactics and thought the right thoughts and you, you can't overcome and God invades your life and he does something that clearly is not from you, what a beautiful opportunity to worship him and testify to his goodness. So we don't want to fall into the trap of just providing people with the laws that will help them to overcome, but we also want to ground that in the foundation of God's sanctifying grace, mm -hmm. which is available to those that love and know the Lord. Awesome. Well, thanks, Aaron. Appreciate this uh, time we could spend walking through the second deadly sin, or the second one we've covered anyways, of lust, and perhaps maybe more in the future. We'll see. Thanks for our listeners for tuning in. And a reminder that you can hear this podcast both on pursuitofglory.org, which is a resourcing site of Pastor Aaron's, as well as over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We look forward to having you back next week to tune into another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.